You are listening to Kilometer Zero by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 9 of this year's Giro d'Italia starts in a small town nestled in the Abruzzo Mountains. The population of Castel di Sangro is 6,000. It's an unremarkable place in a ruggedly beautiful setting. Not somewhere that you'd go out of your way to visit, unless the Giro was here of course. But the town is a bit shabby, a bit run down. We get a sense of the place in the opening to a book, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro by Joe McGuinness. Here is McGuinness describing his arrival. I was no tourist. For better or worse, I had business in the Abruzzo. My destination was the remote town of Castel di Sangro, which some contend means castle of blood in the local dialect. The town is shielded from outsiders by what one reference book describes as an inaccessibility extreme even by the standards of the Abruzzo. It is located almost 3,000 feet above sea level. Winter lasts from October to May, and in all seasons bestial winds gust down upon it from higher mountains above. On one side Castel di Sangro is bordered by the Abruzzo National Park, which still contains wolves and brown bears, as well as more than 30 species of reptile. On the other side lies the immense and silent Valle della Famina Morta, or Valley of the Dead Woman. Strangers to the region, who ask how such a name came to attach itself to such a vast and empty expanse, reportedly receive only shrugs or the shaking of heads in response. This is a landscape, warns one guidebook, that should be approached with caution, or, in the alternative, not approached at all. Yet so deep in the grip of mania was I, that I was not only approaching but preparing to plunge into its core, alone, knowing no one, speaking not a word of Italian, yet committed to staying for more than nine months. Who was Joe McGuinness, what was the miracle of Castel di Sangro, and why was he staying in the town for nine months? Well, McGuinness was a highly regarded, best-selling non-fiction writer in his native US, who made his name with the selling of the president about Richard Nixon in 1969. The miracle was the town's football club's promotion to Italy's second division, Serie B, in 1996. McGuinness, who'd become an unlikely football or soccer obsessive, read about this in an Italian football magazine and decided, almost spontaneously it seems, to take himself from his comfortable home in Massachusetts to this remote Italian town, staying initially in a zero-star hotel which locked its doors on Wednesdays, whether it had guests or not, and yes, McGuinness found himself locked in, before moving to a small and very cold apartment in the same block as the team's manager and one of its players. When, shortly after arriving, McGuinness first sets eyes on the Castel di Sangro team, he is smitten. He writes, As soon as the squad took the field, I felt all traces of objectivity and detachment vanish. For better or worse, this was my team now, in a way no other in any sport had ever been. The author is thereafter transformed from detached observer to obsessive fan. He even tries to get involved in tactics, haranguing the hapless manager with his opinions on player selection and formations. In the end, the miracle turns very sour indeed. But the book that comes out of it, The Miracle of Castel di Sangro, is a crazily wonderful read. 
McGuinness died in 2014, aged 71. He was clearly a complicated man. As well as being a well-regarded and popular writer, he was the subject of Janet Malcolm's book, The Journalist and the Murderer, which begins, Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He is a kind of confidence man, preying on people's vanity, ignorance or loneliness, gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Like the credulous widow who wakes up one day to find the charming young man and all her savings gone, so the consenting subject of a piece of non-fiction learns, when the article or book appears, his hard lesson. Journalists justify their treachery in various ways according to their temperaments. The more pompous talk about freedom of speech and the public's right to know. The least talented talk about art. The seemliest murmur about earning a living. This book had come out a couple of years before McGuinness went to Castel di Sangro, and also after he'd handed back a million dollar advance to write about the O.J. Simpson trial which he had sat through. And this context perhaps explains why he threw himself so completely into what everybody else considered an obscure, eccentric and frankly irrational project. It also left him vulnerable. McGuinness's own journey, the sense of him being on an emotional roller coaster, is part of the miracle of Castel di Sangro and a big part of what makes it such an engrossing read. And it reads more like a novel than a work of non-fiction. The cast of characters is extraordinary, from the cigar-puffing, monosyllabic owner whose money comes from the construction industry in Napoli, to the player arrested having been suspected of being involved in a cocaine ring. And there is tragedy too. Mid-season, two players die in a car crash. It's a shocking and unbearably sad moment in the book. On one page they are gloriously alive. On the next, the rest of the team, the whole town and McGuinness himself are grief-stricken. We've passed through Castel di Sangro on the Giro before, but having a stage start here offered the perfect excuse to revisit a classic book. And just before the Giro got underway, I called McGuinness's widow, Nancy, to ask about her memories of the miracle of Castel di Sangro. Oh, hello, Nancy. It's uh, Richard Moore here. Hi, Richard. It's nice to meet you. And and you, how are you? I'm good. Good, good. I'm just looking through an old copy of The Miracle of Castel de Sangro. Oh, really? Wow. I'm sure you're more up on it than I am, having just reread it. Yeah, I think that's the third time I've read it, actually. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> I know you've spoken before about Joe's obsession with football. I think fascination is probably not a strong enough word. Um, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there is not a strong enough word. Yeah. Um, I read a piece by Michael Michael Hahn, I think, who came and stayed with you. And, and he, um, yes. I think he said it was, an, that he loved football with an intensity, an intensity that could be frightening, I think is how he put it. So, <laughs> um, I know Michael kept trying to change the subject, but Joe was not <laughs> interested in talking politics. No, absolutely. But, but, um, I, I listened to an interview that you gave with, with Martin Gregg. You said you, you both became fascinated with the Italian team and Baggio in particular. So you, you shared that fascination to some extent. Yes, absolutely. I got completely sucked in and my brain is stuffed full of Italian soccer players of the 90s. Well, in fact, all of Europe and England, for that matter. Mm, mm. I could name them all. And we actually met Baggio I, Did you? He put his arm around me. Uh, I swore I'd never wash my shoulders again, but I finally did. Pirlo in profondità per Baggio, posizione regolare, Baggio, attenzione, porta vuota, Baggio, rete! E Roberto Baggio fa mutolire il Delle Alpi. 1 a 1. 
Suffice to say that Roberto Baggio, one of the great stars of Italian football in the 1990s, albeit with one of the worst nicknames, he was known as the Divine Ponytail, did not play for Castel di Sangro. There was nothing glamorous about Castel di Sangro. The football club, like the town, was gritty and a bit rough around the edges, enduring long, cold, hard winters, an unlikely place for a miracle, and an unlikely place for a successful American writer. I mean, do you remember the, the moment when, when this idea first began to develop in Joe's mind that, you know, he obviously read about the, the Miracle team and, and was fascinated by that story. But do you remember when, do you remember the origins of the, of the plan? I do. Joe had a huge contract to write about the O.J. Simpson trial. And he had actually, I, do, you, do you remember the O.J. Simpson trial? It was very famous over here. He'd actually sat through the whole thing and um, he had a precious seat at the whole thing. Uh, he'd been out in Los Angeles for nine months um, and just then, and many people actually were going to write about it. Then he came home and tried to write about it. It was not really his thing that uh, because he had never got to really spend any time, never even met O.J. Simpson, didn't get to spend any time with any of the main characters and he hated the verdict he felt very cynical and he was falling into a terrible depression the only thing in his life professionally that interested him well it wasn't professional but the only thing in his life that cheered him up was soccer at that point or football and he at this that time he one of the publications he subscribed to was called Guerin Sportivo. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but it was a, a monthly Italian magazine mostly focusing on soccer. And uh, I think it was in February of um, 96 that there was a story about this tiny little team. They had miraculously won promotion to Syria B. And Joe just got hung up on this great success story and uh he just got focused on that and while he was tr struggling to write a, this horrible book that he hated and he finally decided that that's what he wanted to do instead of writing the book about oj simpson so he basically had to give back about a million dollars and get a contract a tiny little contract to write this book about a, a an obscure little soccer team in the Abruzzo, which most Americans had never even heard of. You know, it's pretty, I mean, it's a fantastic area of Italy. It's gorgeous, but most Americans have never even heard of it. And um, so he got a, a contract, which his his uh, agent called, uh, since you're writing about something that teenagers are interested in, you're getting a teenager's contract. <laughs> He was really pissed off. And what was your what was your reaction? You know, when when you know, you, you realized that he was serious about actually going and 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 living there for best part of a year. Well, my reaction was it's better than him falling into a terrible depression because that seemed to be the alternative. He needed to follow his passion, and he was in his mid fifties. Uh, I I felt that it, it was time for him to do something he really wanted to do. And he went out there initially um, for for a short shortish period um, because he had to come he had to come back to the states I think for some some family business but then he returned for a, a longer spell and you went out to to visit him as well do you remember when you went 
Um, okay, I went in. It was in. It was the fall, and it was before the tragic car accident that killed uh, Pipo and Mimo. Because that's when I I don't know if the the version of the book you have has photographs, yeah. but I took some photographs. Yeah, and there's pictures of I think of Pipo Danilo yeah. and uh, um, so I, I maybe it was in October. Um, it was just before the car accident. So, and it, it was, you know, a, the, if you've been to the town before, it's not the most gorgeous little Italian town, it, but the setting is stunning. I just think it was, I just thought it was beautiful. In the mornings when the weather was right, if I lay flat on my back in bed and looked out the window facing west, I could see only a russet coloured mountain beneath a bright, untainted blue sky. The uppermost ridgeline of the mountain, perhaps 2,000 feet above me, was rugged and jagged, as one sees in the American West. The golden colour of the Abruzzese fall had begun advancing down the mountain's flank like an army, each day driving back a few metres farther the doomed green forces that had ruled all summer long. When I sat up, however, the foreground was a parking lot that lay empty except on Thursdays, when it became the site of the outdoor market, second only to the Sunday match, as the most exciting event in a Castel di Sangro week. Beyond the parking lot was a jerry-built, pastel-coloured, eight-storey apartment house block, assembled that appeared in less time than it was taking to expand the stadium, that provided vacation homes for the middle class of Naples. Thus, before even rising from bed each day, I could see both the best and the worst of Castel di Sangro. Freed from my cell at the Corradetti, I could much better appreciate the town's charms. Agreed architectural glory was not among them, but there is more to life than old buildings. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable inside, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Kilometer Zero by The Cycling Podcast. Powered by Super Sapiens. As part of Super Sapiens' sponsorship of Kilometre Zero, we're introducing listeners to the Team Novo Nordisk riders. One of their Italian riders, Andrea Peron, is currently riding the Tour de Hongri and is due to race the Tour of Estonia at the end of the month. But in between, he's hoping to visit the Giro d'Italia when a stage starts near his home at the end of next week. Phil Sutherland, the founder of Super Sapiens, started the team to show that the condition need not prevent riders from taking a place in the pro peloton. Andrea and his teammates are proof of that. Andrea himself was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was 15 years old and dreaming of a career as a pro. I was pretty lucky. Okay, Lucky is maybe not the, the right word, but uh, it's happened that uh, it was one month that I was not feeling really, really good. I was you know when you feel there is something that is not hundred percent and uh but the good stuff was like it was the end of the season, so I got diagnosed and uh I have all the winter for prepare myself and try to understand uh how I need to change the stuff uh, with diabetes, and then the year after I can restart racing the normal season. So I think after 15 years old that uh, I have diabetes, I I can I know what my body is telling me. So I can uh, I can have uh, the the sensation. I I feel some sensation and I say okay, 
now my level of sugar is gonna be going low or going high, so I can adjust and do what I need. To find out more about Super Sapiens and the continuous glucose monitoring system that can help improve your training, go to supersapiens.com. And what were your, uh, I mean, what what were your impressions then of of the the people as well? Did you uh, and how Joel was settling in and being received by them? Oh, everybody was incredibly welcoming. I mean, it was kind of crazy because nobody spoke English, nobody at all, and Joel is not a great linguist, <laughs> so he was struggling. It was funny. That part was very funny. Um, and I had picked up Italian pretty well. I'd already knew Spanish. And so the language was very challenging and it was exhausting. It was incredibly exhausting for Joe, but he managed to communicate amazingly well. Everybody was very welcoming. Marcella's was definitely the center of all the action. Everybody gathered there every day and they they seemed to love Joe. Joe had, he had an amazing way about him. Um, and he, his amazing enthusiasm and the light in his eyes and his passion for, <laughs> for Castel de Sangro was, it was so immediate and, and, uh, ridiculous, <laughs> excessive well, that they couldn't help but embrace him. And, and you said in your conversation with Martin that the, 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 the language barrier almost turned to his advantage um, because as you I think it was a very perceptive point that it, you know not not speaking the language can can infantilize you in the eyes of, of others and and they perhaps you know trusted him in a way that maybe they maybe they shouldn't have done in in the sense that you know he was a, a journalist trying to soak up as much information as he could and and actually his lack of fluency in Italian might have proven an advantage in that respect. I think that's really true and uh, it's a cautionary tale for anybody who is dealing with somebody who is a foreigner and doesn't speak well because you understand so much more than you can express yourself in another language and most of the time that was absolutely fine but joe was very much more perceptive than anybody realized and all the way through of course the impact in the end was was quite obvious he knew what was going on and nobody everybody thought he was oblivious you know when they were throwing that last game but it didn't it not that it mattered uh they weren't going to do anything differently just because joe knew and that's what the tragedy of the cultural gap the fact was, as we moved toward the year's darkest days, it was only my presence in Castel di Sangro that continued to bring Gravina and the team the favourable publicity he craved. I state this simply as a fact. Far from having been proud of it, I was embarrassed. I was not striving for publicity, merely trying to be cooperative. Two or three times a week as my Italian began to improve, a representative of La Sociata would inform me that a new interview had been arranged. Then in person or by telephone, with newspapers, television stations and magazines, I praised the town and its warm and caring people, the team members who were not only committed athletes, but gentlemen of the highest order. Giacconi, who was the best neighbour a man could hope for, and, as his past record demonstrated undoubtedly, a fine manager too. And even Gravina, whose vision and whose faith in the improbable had created the whole rich, rewarding stew. I was scrupulous about saying only the most benign things. 
One could, I suppose, view this as hypocrisy on my part, but I felt that my more complex, not to say negative, reactions were works in progress and that they were strictly my business until the time came for me to write my book. It was enough for the moment to tell the people what they wanted to hear, that I'd come to the Abruzzo to write a beautiful story about wonderful, humble people who had dared to dream and who'd then seen their dream become reality. He, he does say quite early on in the book that there was a moment he had while watching a team training that he'd never been happier in his life. And I mean, the the the, the, the context of the, the O.J. Simpson book perhaps partly explains that. But did you get that sense, too, that he was really in his element in those early days? He was. He was transported. And that's that's Joe. I mean, he's he you use the term content. I, I don't know if he said he was content. I don't think. Joe was really capable of contentment, but he was capable of ecstasy. He was a man of extremes. The, he wrote another book called Going to Extremes, and actually that, um, I came up with that title, but that, that actually describes Joe's whole life. He was a man of extremes, and the extreme that he experienced, he experienced both extremes, of course, with, with uh, the miracle book. But he loved being completely immersed in this experience. It was, as you could tell, uh, a complete escape from the other difficulties of his life, of everything he hated about the O.J. Simpson trial. And what had come before that, he'd, he'd had other difficulties with his professional life that were making him very unhappy. So... The, football and the the drama of it the ups and downs it was just such a great new focus for him but he also talks about you know the the, the minute that the, the team took to the the pitch for the first the his first physical sighting of them he 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 felt sort of that he was beguiled immediately and and he lost any sense of detachment and and i guess this is this is one of the, the curiosities about it that, you know, th they say that reporters have to be detached and objective, but this wouldn't be, the, th this would not be the book that it is had he been detached and objective. No, I know. I, he lost, I, yes, he was supposed to be the fly in the wall like he was with the selling the president, but the, he, no, when the both times that I visited, he kept pulling Yaconi aside to, to try and tell him, you know, what kind of formation he, he should be. <laughs> These, this was not exaggerated in the book. He was always telling Yaconi who he should play and what position and what should happen. And I don't know how Osvaldo put up with him at all. <laughs> it was just, he was awful. He really got obnoxious. Were you concerned about that from, you know, that he was so attached to it, that he was so emotionally invested in, in the team that, that there, were, there were dangers in that, there were risks? Well, I was concerned that they would hate him, <laughs> but there's no, um, I had no spousal influence, let's put it that way. I could tell him to, to cool it, but it just didn't, telling Joe to cool it is, was, you know, like telling a, a tornado to stop. <laughs> and, and your other visits to the town, I mean, how, how did you, did you come to, love it did you come to enjoy being there oh yes i it was always fascinating well when i came back in the spring uh a lot had happened um 
Gigi Prete's wife had been arrested. Uh, so that was that was tough. But a fascinating uh, experience when I came back in the spring is I we went to visit Senor Retz's mountaintop Erie. That was amazing. If Reza himself nodded to me, it was done with head movement of less than an inch. More likely, it had not been done at all. Certainly his expression did not change, his mouth did not open, his gaze did not soften. Cigar in hand, he just stood there. Please tell Signor Rezza, I said to Barbara, that I am very honoured to be included in such special company on such an auspicious occasion, and that I wish him and his team the greatest success possible, not only for today but for the entire forthcoming season. Also, you might mention that I'm glad we are eating at a restaurant called the Sea River Club, not because of the English name, but because I'm especially fond of fish, and it's hard to get good fresh fish where I live in America, being so many miles from the sea. Also that I was interrupted by a grunt from Retza. He was looking at me with, if possible, an even less inviting expression on his face. He wants you to stop talking, Barbara said. He does not like men who talk too much. He likes men who know how to eat and who know how to keep silent. When did he say all that? He just grunted. I have known Signor Retza for many years, Barbara told me. I can interpret his grunts. He took us into his his greenhouse and made us eat his oranges. I mean, he really, he was very much as Joe described him. You did not say no to Signor Retza. And he served us little demitasse cups of bitter espresso. And uh, it, was, it was very bizarre. He had his own little herd of um, some sort of reindeer. It was, it was an extraordinary experience being up there. It was all very solemn. And then he had a, this whole little area with, that with some sort of huge plexiglass enclosure so he could sunbathe naked. I, ugh, the thought of that was not very attractive. But um, well, uh, was he as terrifying, <laughs> as, in, as intimidating as he appears in the book? I, I was pre-intimidated, so I, I can't. <laughs> if I hadn't already been heard Joe's version of him, maybe I wouldn't have been as intimidated. But I think he was fairly intimidated. The people around him seemed to be cringing constantly, so I just took that as the way I should act as well. And then, I mean, at one point, Joe also talks about, you know, sensing that he was losing his, his grip on reality at one point. I mean, was that, he means that he doesn't mean it in a really serious way, more more that he was so um, attached to the team that he, he was he was a, an uber fan, wasn't he, by that point? And I guess that's always, always, always comes with risks. But um, Yeah, tifoso is the term in, in Italian. He definitely lost his perspective. And, and does that make the book better, do you think? Yes, I, I think uh, some people uh, hated the book because uh, of Joe's attitude. They didn't, they didn't get that. But I, I think the people who really appreciated the book got, I mean, that, that's, that's part and parcel of what the book is is the fact that Joe fell so hard. I retain clear memories of what my life was like before. In many ways, I suppose it was better. My children respected me. My wife and I shared numerous interests. I had friends. I enjoyed music. I read books. 
that I would suddenly grow obsessed with football seemed no more likely than my becoming an astronaut. And there was nothing gradual about the onset. I simply woke up one morning in late spring of 1994, suddenly overwhelmed by enthusiasm over the fact that the United States that summer would host the World Cup, a competition held every four years to determine the world's champion of soccer. That I had never seen a single match in all my life did not seem relevant in the least. I, I think the answer is no, but did Joe ever go back to Castel di Sangro? No, um, as I think you know, uh, Gravina turned out to be kind of the villain of the piece, he, the president, and um, took a legal action against Joe, so he felt that he couldn't go back to the town itself. We did go back to Italy a couple of times, and we visited with um, a number of the players that he stayed in touch in touch with, excuse me, uh, including the goalkeeper, Lotti, and especially... Um, Spinoza, who was, you may recall, the goalkeeper who got them up to Serie B in the first place with that miracle save. And he was the goalkeeper coach uh, the year that Joe was there. And we, in fact, we, we stayed such friends with Spinoza that he came and lived with us um, in Massachusetts and uh, was a coach at the college in the town where we were living at Williams College, this very prestigious college in Massachusetts for a year. When, uh, and we also, well, we visited with a few other uh, ex-players, but we, we never went back to the town itself. The Miracle of Castel di Sangro would make a terrific film or TV series, it has been mooted and various production companies have optioned the rights, though it has not materialised, at least not yet. One of the problems faced by production companies is McGuinness's allegation at the end of the book that the players threw a match, a claim confirmed by some and still denied by others associated with the club. I asked Nancy whether we might still see the miracle of Castel di Sangro on the screen. Now we have yet another um, miracle option in process and we've decided that we're just going to not cover the last chapter everybody involved in this project loved joe and i we all think that there's no reason to just you know end it with look you know them throwing the last game that it's kind of a drag <laughs> so how how do you look back on it now? I mean, the all that scepticism about him him doing this book, and yet here I am talking to you about it twenty odd years on. It's wonderful. I I loved I loved that book so much. I really did. The whole experience was such a great way to get beyond the whole O.J. Simpson Simpson thing, which was terrible. And it was great to focus on another country, another culture, another. Just something that seemed, well, the thing is, it seemed like, you know, the beautiful game. And for it to be the beautiful game and then for somebody to throw it, it was kind of, <laughs> there's always a worm in the apple. Whereas cycling is a pure sport, nobody ever takes drugs in cycling. Not at all. <laughs> It's great to 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 hear your um, recollections of that of that time. Um, and uh, how, how do you think Joe looked back on the book? I mean, you know, what what were what were his feelings towards it in the end? 
Well, he loved the book. I, I don't think he regretted anything that he wrote in the book. He was disappointed that it didn't get any attention in the United States. I mean, it actually got great reviews. It probably got the best reviews of any of his books, but it was ignored. Um, he loved the reviews it got in England. It was up for some great prize that was won by uh, a guy who wrote a 900-page tome about the history of cricket and died before the prize came out. <laughs> but he came, in, he came in second. Oh, the William Hill Prize, that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but at least he got a free trip to London. Yeah, it should anyway. have, I'm sure it should have won. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it, it, it's a cult classic, I think. Um, but it's a cult classic with, with you know, that that's... It, it's got there's an awful lot of people who will have read that book well and he does love hearing i mean he 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 did love hearing from people about it it just you know people still read it and it, it was it was very satisfying to him right up to the end to hear from people about miracle so uh that part was wonderful i guess and I, it's it's wonderful and people still made pilgrim pilgrimages to castle de sangro which was great too well, we'll be making our pilgrimage there uh, next month, so I'll uh, send you a photograph of uh, Castel de Sangro. Oh, I would love that, Richard. Oh, please do. That was Joe McGuinness's widow, Nancy Doherty, on her late husband's book, The Miracle of Castel de Sangro. If you haven't read it, well, to quote one review, you need to read a 400-page non-fiction book about an inconsequential Italian club you've never heard of, from an inconsequential area you've never heard of, with inconsequential players you've never heard of, under an inconsequential manager you've never heard of, that had won improbably inconsequential season in Serie B in the 1990s. When we visit Castel di Sangro for the Giro, we'll go on our own pilgrimage, visiting Marcella's, the pizzeria that's the main social hub in the book, among other places mentioned by McGuinness. Sadly, though perhaps not surprisingly, the football club went bust not long after their single season in the big time. A new one rose from the ashes, but they play in the very minor leagues of Italian football. You've been listening to an episode of Kilometre Zero by The Cycling Podcast. It was produced by Tom Wally.